This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The frenzy over NFTs or non-fungible tokens is a little hard to wrap your head around. From digital art to sports memorabilia to tweets, everyone seems to be getting into the craze and the sales prices are staggering. From nearly $600,000 for the NFT of Nyan Cat, a cat with a Pop-Tart body that leaves a trail of rainbows, to $2.9 million for an NFT of Twitter founder Jack Dorsey's first tweet, to a record $69 million for the NFT of a digital art collage by the artist Beeple sold at Christie's Auction House in March. Even the artist, whose real name is Mike Winkleman, seemed overwhelmed by the final price as he and his family watched the auction from his living room. We're watching the closing of the auction, which closes in an hour and 18 minutes. It's already at like an absolutely ridiculous amount. Hey Mike, this is Jason. I just want to say congratulations. You're at $25,250,000. It's crazy, man. Oh, oh my God! God. Sixty-nine million. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. I'm going to Disney World. So, what is an NFT, and why are they so hot? Joining me is Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar Krinsky and Drogan, who recently wrote an article on NFTs and securities law and turned it into an NFT. So, Bob, tell us what an NFT is. An NFT is a non-fungible token, and it's a new development that's been occurring in the markets. And unlike, say, a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which is fungible in the way uh, dollar bills are, in the sense that you don't care what sort of dollar bill you get, they're all pretty much the same and they do the same thing. An NFT is a unique token. So people do care about the specific token that they're getting because each one is on the blockchain and each one individually carries a certain amount of rights with it, whether it's to digital art or to music or to other things. And it's really a way that's starting to revolutionize a lot of the creative industries. NFTs seem to be really popular for artistic endeavors. NFTs have been the most popular with respect to artistic endeavors. In March, there was an auction at Christie's where an artist named Beeple had sold a digital art collection for $69 million, and that's really raised a lot of interest. And the NFT market for art had been growing before that, but with that blockbuster sale, it really came into the mainstream. There's other companies, especially the NBA, they've been at the forefront in terms of creating NFTs for essentially collectibles and almost like uh, the digital version of sports collectible cards. And as we look to the future, there's a lot of exciting possibilities in the, in the physical world, like ownership of real property that can be documented on the blockchain. There's a lot of new opportunities that are out there, but currently it seems like the creative industries are really um, in the throes of the new NFT craze and benefiting a lot from it. So just to get really down to basics, if you buy an NFT, what do you get? A digital file? Do you get a thumb drive? What do you get in your hand or on your computer? Well, that's a great question, June, because each NFT has its own set of rights with it. And really right now, it's a buyer beware market. So buyers really have to dig deep and understand what they're getting. But at the heart of it, a person gets essentially a piece of code, and they're mostly being done on the Ethereum blockchain, but there's some other blockchains that are doing it as well. But 
you don't get any sort of physical device like a USB drive. You have to have a digital wallet, which accepts Ethereum or whatever cryptocurrency you, you get. And it appears essentially in your wallet, on your browser or on your cell phone. And it's an NFT that's unique. It's on the blockchain and it's a way of authenticating the person that purchased that NFT is really the true owner of that piece of digital artwork or work that was created the NFT that was sold at Christie's for the digital art. So you own the NFT. Do you own the digital art? Can you say if someone tries to show that digital art on a computer somewhere, can you say that's mine? You can't use that? It really comes down to the rights that the creator, the artist, uh, gives to the token purchaser. Um, and, and each uh, token can carry different rights. Um, a lot of the digital art tokens that are being created come with licenses for the person to be able to essentially use it for personal use. Uh, other NFTs come with rights to commercialize the digital artwork and to, to generate royalties. And that's really one of the nice things about NFTs is that they really allow for a lot of customization. Uh, some artists are even including uh, residual clauses in their tokens so that if they sell the first one, say, for $1,000, and then that person resells it for 10000 the artist might get 10% as a residual uh, royalty from the subsequent sales of the token. And they, the, the rights can really be uh, tailored to however the artist wants to give to the, to the purchaser. So is it governed by the securities laws? Whether the securities laws apply is going to be a developing question. I recently wrote an article that ties into whether NFTs are covered by securities laws, and I actually turned that article into an NFT, and I sold it on a digital platform. So somebody out there purchased my NFT of the first legal article, as far as I know. But a lot of the securities law questions are going to be tied into how the token is marketed. If it's marketed as an investment as a way for people to make money, as something where they're going to be relying on the efforts of other people in order to earn a profit, then it's very likely that an NFT could come under the regulations of securities. But if it's being marketed as more of a digital collectible, as a way to authenticate the ownership, as a way to authenticate that it's a legitimate, authorized piece of digital art, then in that situation, it's a lot less likely to become a security. So it's really going to be a new developing area as we apply these principles that have been around for over 100 years with the securities laws to these new emerging technologies in the digital space. So let's say that three people get together to create an NFT for profit based on art. Is that an investment contract that might be subject to securities laws? It certainly can be. If the people create an NFT that's focused on digital art, but when they go out to sell that NFT and they promote it in such a way as a person can get rich or they could make a significant profit by buying this NFT, and it's really a decision that's being driven by an investment desire and a profit-making desire under an old Supreme Court test called the Howey test, that contract, that NFT, could be considered an investment contract and therefore security these days, most people are trying to stay away from that. So we are seeing a lot of marketing being done by artists that are really emphasizing the art and the collectability of the art and the significance of the art versus a way of trying to entice people to invest based on a desire to turn a quick profit. Now, a lot of people are purchasing these NFTs with a desire to perhaps make money, 
but that in itself will not be enough to make it a security. It's really going to depend on the whole picture about how the tokens are being marketed to people. Do you know of any NFTs that have been registered as a security? I'm not aware of any NFTs that have yet to be registered as a security. Um, I do know that recently there is an investment fund that is in the process of being uh, started that it looks like it's going to be listed on the London uh, Stock Exchange. Um, So definitely there's some more established players that are coming into the NFT market to, um, to invest in it. But as of yet, I don't believe that any NFTs have been uh, registered as securities. And the nice thing about NFTs as we kind of compare it to the boom and in initial coin offerings uh, several years ago is that while initial coin offerings had a lot of the traditional indications that they would be securities, in other words, people were re- using um, initial coin offerings to raise money for new businesses and they were going to be deploying the capital to develop concepts. Those things were almost you know, very uh, similar to typical uh, startups issuing stock. Here with NFTs, I think there's much more of a real-world uh, application in terms of people um, you know, purchasing these items, not so much to invest in the business because these, these digital artworks are already created. So people aren't funding new ideas. They're, they're purchasing digital art. They're purchasing certificates of authenticity. So I, I think the whole impetus in a lot of ways for NFTs has a much more real-world focus and much, much nat- more natural um, affinity for collectibles and for art than they would for, for securities laws and investment purposes. Let's say it was determined that one of these NFTs was an investment contract. What kinds of procedures do you have to go through if, if it's considered a security? Well, if it's a security, there's a couple of uh, problems that are going to come up. You know, one, if a, if a creator sells an NFT and it's subsequently determined to be a security, that person is going to be subject to sanctions in terms of having to potentially uh, disgorge any money that they received, having to pay civil penalties to the SEC, having an injunction entered against the person, um, and, and that's going to be <clears throat> quite uh, quite problematic. But if a person was to um, create an NFT that, that was designed to be a security and to come under the securities laws, then the traditional ways of marketing a security would come into effect. If the person wants to sell it to the general public, they'll have to register that NFT with the Securities and Exchange Commission on a registration statement with a prospectus that outlines the the business purpose of the NFT, outlines the risk factors. But probably if people are going to create NFTs, their first first approaches are more likely to be private placements, which are also regulated by the SEC under something called Regulation D. And these are investment opportunities that are open to accredited investors, and uh, they generally can't be marketed uh, to the general public um, with certain exceptions. So it's a it's a it's a much more established market and in a in a regulatory regime that people will become familiar with. So if you create an NFT and decide to sell it, what do you have to think about legally? Well, right now it's it's an open question, but if you're just a regular uh, person that's participating in uh, some of these online marketplaces, there's there's quite a few that have gotten to be uh, very popular. There's different marketplaces called Mintable and Rarible and Topshop is the NBA shop. Um, as a as a person just buying an NFT for their own use or maybe looking to resell it down the road, you really don't have much in the way to to worry about with regards to securities regulations. It really only becomes a, an issue if um, if you're 
go out and you're promoting it and you're issuing perhaps press releases or another area that's been of great concern to the SEC or social media influencers, there's been a number of um, celebrities that have been charged by the SEC for accepting undisclosed payments for cryptocurrencies and touting those cryptocurrencies on their social media accounts. Uh, Floyd Mayweather, the famous boxer, was one of the uh, one of the people that settled with the SEC about that. Um, so, but as long as you're not accepting payments for uh, that aren't being disclosed, and you're just uh, kind of personally purchasing and selling NFTs, there's really not a lot of risk uh, to that uh, process. So, Bob, can you walk us through how you made an NFT of your article? Yeah, what I did is I used one of the popular sites called Mintable. So I took the PDF of the article that I wrote. I used the Mintable site to create an NFT from it, and then I listed it for sale on the Mintable site. And to my surprise, about five hours after I created it, there was a crypto investor, an entrepreneur that had purchased the NFT. But it was really a pretty straightforward process. I had a basic understanding of Ethereum and had a wallet already. Once you have the basic covered, uh, it's not a very difficult process. And a lot of people that are, you know, everyday artists that aren't necessarily tech people are finding it manageable to create their own NFTs. And so how much did you get? I did it more just as a learning experience. So I sold it for the grand price of $5. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, in the future, as I think about it, maybe I'll create another NFT or something else in the legal space. But it was really a great learning experience. And so I'm a securities lawyer that's worked a lot in the crypto space. Part of the reason I did it was to better understand my clients who, who are also starting to operate with NFTs and creating them. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Heim of Tartar, Kinsky & Drogan. The Netflix documentary series on the college admission scandal entitled Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admission Scandal, became available for streaming on March 17th. The movie, starring actor Matthew Modine as Rick Singer, the admitted mastermind of the college admission scheme, presents reenactments of conversations drawn from FBI tapes in addition to the usual interviews of documentary fare. We help the wealthiest families in the U.S. get their kids into school. So I've done 761, what I would call side doors. The front door means getting in on your own. So I've created this kind of side door in. Because my families want a guarantee. A private equity and real estate executive accused of paying bribes to get his children into Harvard, Stanford, and USC as recruited athletes is suing Netflix for defamation. John B. Wilson has pleaded not guilty and is awaiting trial on charges including money laundering conspiracy, federal programs bribery, and filing a false tax return. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Patricia Hurtado. Pat, tell us a little bit about the series and the complaint. Well, the Netflix did a series based on the investigation in the case called Operation Varsity Blues, and it's based on the events of the case and allegations, including, you know, that Lori Loughlin and her husband um, had allegations that they got their daughters to pose on a rowing machine and pretend that they were real athletes uh, so they could get into, like, USC. Um, this dad is a private equity um, executive, and he lives in Linfield, and he is fighting the charges. 
the Netflix series, it's a documentary that is a reenactment of the investigation. So what they've done is they've hired actors and actresses to read the transcripts of the wiretaps and the conversations of the government quotes and the criminal complaints and indictments against the parents. And then they have actors and actresses reenact the FBI agents listening to the call. So it's a documentary, but not in the typical Ken Burns type of documentary <laughs> that you're thinking of with real people. Um, this is a, of a recent case that's still pending. So there are at least a half dozen parents that are still fighting the charges of the more than 30 parents that were charged in the case. And so the parents that are still fighting the charges include this dad, uh, John Wilson, from Linfield, Massachusetts. He has three kids, and he was accused of conspiring to get with, with Singer to pay bribes to get his children into USC, Stanford, and Harvard. So Wilson says he's innocent, but the film groups him in with the parents who pleaded guilty. And he claims they contacted the producers before the series aired. What happens is, according to uh, the lawyer for John Wilson, is that they met with the Netflix producers before the series was completed, the documentary was completed, and the lawyer gave them evidence, the producer's evidence of what he said is will clear him of wrongdoing, evidence of his actual innocence, including that the dad, John Wilson, took a, a, a lie detector test and passed with flying colors, according to lawyer Howard Cooper. He also says that they have evidence of the kids' SAT and ACT score, test scores, um, the, the grade uh, of the, the three kids that they merited applying to these schools. And one of the key examples is that there is um, the allegation that his son may have had this picture doctored as a fake athlete, as a water polo athlete, when John Wilson's lawyer says they actually have proof that um, his son, Johnny, uh, was a star high school water polo player who is now at USC on the USC water polo team, and he's never been taken off so that he merited it. There also is um, the father says there's proof that all three of his kids tested in the 90th percentile of their college exams, including one daughter who got a perfect score on her ACT test. So they presented all this evidence to the Netflix producers, according to uh, Howard Cooper, who's John Wilson's lawyer, and uh, Netflix went ahead and put him in the same hopper with the parents who pled guilty. And they talked about doctored photos and photoshopped pictures of kids that are fake athletes. So now uh, John Wilson says he's technically going to stand trial in September you have all these people sitting at home watching Netflix because they're the global pandemic. They can't go to the movies. So they're live streaming their hearts out on at home on their sofas. And John Wilson says the whole potential jury pool who could hear his case in September has now been painted. That evidence sounds pretty strong, but before trial, they would have tried to approach the prosecution, right, and present that evidence, but the prosecution is still going forward. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us, I mean, there is a fine line if you think about it. You know, everyone is presumed innocent until convicted, right, until either plead, you plead guilty or you're convicted at trial. So um, it, it sounds to me almost like the producers at Netflix didn't make that distinction, 
in their depictions of the parents. And um, John Wilson's lawyer told me that he, the family friends of his client have called him up and said, hey, I didn't know you did this. I thought you did what, you know, X or Y. And, and it completely blurs the line between those who have admitted their guilt versus those who didn't. So, I mean, uh, technically, you know, we as journalists, we would write and say the person has denied wrongdoing and is fighting the charges and here's what their law- defense lawyers say. But that's kind of uh, omitted from these reenactments, according to the lawyer uh, complaining about the documentary. So they sued them for defamation and the producers saying they're basically put in the same bucket with all the parents who pled guilty. You know, the likes of a Lori Loughlin and her husband or in Felicity Huffman, they've admitted their guilt. They said they did these crimes. They plead guilty. And that's the truth as far as the courts are concerned. But somebody who has pled not guilty has a right to say, wait a minute, the court of public opinion may say something, but, you know, technically you're fighting the charges. And if you want to be accurate, you know, you might need to remember that even in in a documentary depiction. So Wilson says he's not guilty, but did he have any contact at all with Singer who masterminded the admission scandal? He argues that he did have contact with Singer, but nothing was improper. He said he was introduced to Singer after a major financial advisory firm uh, referred him to him, so that he was called a highly reputable college admissions counselor, So, and that they were legitimate donations that were made, not bribes paid, with the way the government argues this. Have the producers or Netflix responded to why they put Wilson in with the people who pleaded guilty? Uh, no, they would not give us any comment. So I guess we'll remain to see what the responses are in court. Um, they filed a lawsuit, and I understand from my colleague in Boston, the lawyer for John Wilson, his name is Howard Cooper, and he's been successful as one of the top defamation lawyers in the Boston area. So this trial will be pending in state court in Boston. You know, we've seen all the movie stars, the famous people going to prison, coming out of prison. It's surprising to me that the case is still going on. Well, you know what? The government charged a whole slew of people. I mean, I think the universe of people, I think we're up into the 50s now. Um, Many of them have pled guilty. And there's certainly, you know, a whole cast of characters and parents, coaches, school uh, consultants testing consultants, as well as, um, you know, the parents that have been implicated in this case. And many of them have pled guilty. I I think the scorecard is, I think we have over 30 parents that have pled guilty. Um, And certainly some coaches, there was a a Stanford sailing coach, a Georgetown tennis coach, they all, they pled guilty. So the universe of people that the, the documentary filmmakers could have used, you know, there's plenty, it's, plenty of material. I guess this dad is saying, I'm not in that universe of people. So you should have made more of a distinction. And, you know, especially he's got a well-known libel and defamation lawyer who's met in advance of the documentary being broadcast and completed. And he said that, you know, he put a dossier of information and they went ahead and he says defamed him. And what about the parents who pleaded guilty and went to prison? Um, some of the parents have gone in and they went, one of the interesting things about this is they went in 
right at the beginning of the pandemic. And some of them got out because of humanitarian reasons that, you know, the risk of, of COVID because of their health issues and they were, at, you know, with comorbidities. So they were able to get out. But some of the parents who went in later after pleading guilty, they ended up finding themselves in a jam because they asked to get released from prison. And basically the judge said, you should have thought about this before you agreed to go into prison. So I can't let you out now because there's just as much COVID out of prison as in prison. So some of the parents that have pled guilty and some of the other participants in the case that have pled guilty they have now postponed their sentencing until things calm down and COVID okay. before they go in. Thanks for being on the show, Pat. That's Patricia Hurtado, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every night at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.